0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our seventh episode, I'll be talking to M. Craig Getting, theatre artist and co-host of The Overdue podcast, about a range of topics, including, but not limited to, great teachers, being a king of Prussia, and a secret he's never told anyone. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress.
1: gonna get up black like
0: alley in the jungle so craig for people who may not know you why don't you tell the world why you are in the words of chris haley a beautiful and unique snowflake
1: did he say that about did chris haley say that about me no he
0: says that about people guess on oh. his podcast and i'm oh. on his
1: line i that's a good i mean great artist steal i what do i do i host a podcast called overdue that's like my primary internet claim to fame and i am also a theater artist in philadelphia pennsylvania city of brotherly love city of brotherly love pretzels cheese steaks and like a little chip on our shoulder about being the birthplace of america and yes we recognize new york city's two hours away but why
0: don't you hang out here for a little while and there was that song about your streets which one the song streets of philadelphia oh (laughs) It's going to be a fun unawares. podcast if you missed that one.
1: Yeah, well, I was like, wait, I don't I've never heard of the Fresh Prince theme referred to as The Song About Our Streets. That's the only that's the song I'm like prepared to talk about <laughs> in as much as I'm prepared to talk about anything, but there you go.
0: That's cool. Apart from Philadelphia, where where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up just outside of Philly actually, about 20 minutes outside of Philly in a town called King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. No, it's y- you yep. no, <laughs> it's it is three words. King of Prussia, uh, the K is capitalized. The P is capitalized. We do King of Prussia doesn't have like it's not a municipal township. It is more of a postal declaration, I suppose, and a like commercial district. It's technically the township is called Upper Marion. And I think there's a there's like a town council and whatever. King of Prussia is named after an inn. I was going to say if you were going to say it's named after a king well of Prussia if, well that's that's true Frederick the Great I don't know if he, how great he was but he apparently I think he was king during the re, of of Prussia during the revolutionary war and the story that I've been told is that during the war so, so Valley Forge National Park in the United States is not far from King of Prussia. It, like, butts up against it. That's where Washington spent some really terrible winters with his soldiers before crossing the Delaware. And he would meet at this inn for, you know, planning meetings and stuff like that. And there were a bunch of Hessian soldiers and other uh, German and Prussian soldiers that were, like, working as mercenaries for the American forces, uh, for the colonies, rather. So apparently they named the inn after... They just called it King of Prussia Inn... Uh, as an attempt to pander to these mercenaries
0: hey y- y'all are kind of from
1: here you like things right <laughs> uh-huh. here we we name this after that dude who's in charge of you
0: that'll work right <laughs> you know that guy you left a country to go and be a mercenary during the revolutionary war i'm sure you've got warm feelings about them yeah, like, you've just like
1: we've got like at this point where we've got help from the French, like there's nothing, no, it's nothing about that, Um, so they named it after him, and then all of the mail in the area was going through that inn, because it was at some crossroads or whatever, so that became the name of the area, but yeah, I grew up on the mean streets of
0: K.O.P., um, which (laughs) has a big mall. Everyone hears about, you know, truth uh, truth or consequences, (laughs) and they hear about all these cool names, I have never heard of King of Prussia, and it's kind of made my morning.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to happy to help. We have a giant mall, uh, which is actually two malls crammed together. We also have a chip. I come from a lot of places that have chips on their shoulder. It is the largest mall in terms of retail square footage in America. That is an increasingly specific superlative. Well, because the mall of America in mini in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is larger, but they have an aquarium in the basement and like a bunch
0: of roller coasters inside. So, uh-huh. we, got, we got more bang for your buck. I'm just picturing some dude with a tape measure going, hey, 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 that ice <laughs> rink does not count.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was from, I bet he was from my town. Um, so, I grew up there, and I didn't move around as a kid. I know a couple people, a couple of, like, my wife moved around as a kid. Um, a couple of good friends moved around when they were growing up. And I lived in the same house my entire life and then went to school eight hours away for college and then moved back and then moved into Philadelphia. So it's kind of, it's interesting. That's a, that that is a formative experience that I know I lack. Cause I know that in a variety of ways that, that sh- shapes people.
0: You know. Yeah, um, is the house still there? By the way,
1: yeah, my mom still lives there. It was—it's pretty old. The first front of the house is like over a hundred years old, and was a, was part of a farmhouse, and then it was tacked on as uh, other rooms were tacked on as it aged. But I—I I also wouldn't describe myself as like a King of Prussia townie. Like I—I I got <laughs> out.
0: You're not—you're not one of those Prussian princes. No, <laughs>
1: no, I ceded my land, and I left. But it's not and not that it is a, like a towny town like there are it's a it's not far from a lot of things
0: and has has a pretty thriving uh business corridor but yeah i moved into the into the big city i guess and so when you go back to visit your mom is is the room still the same like do you have to sleep in the race car bed or what
1: no oh man i never got that race car bed no it's been it's been cannibalized and turned into an office or a workout room, or whatever. She, she changes what is in each room regularly. Okay. Uh, as, as, like, some, you know, kind of like, what, what can I
0: change about my life that is not a huge thing but might, you know, mix up my day-to-day? See, I get really interested in houses that people have lived in for a long time and how they've kind of shaped that because, for example, my, my girlfriend's parents have a place in West Pimble in, in north of Sydney, and when she goes back, her room has been turned into a train set room For her dad. Ooh. (laughs) Uh, And and when I mean the room, I mean the whole room. I mean you go in and there's a trestle table and he's got maybe like 60 centimeters on either side where you can walk around, and the whole thing is like a table with the mountains and everything. And the closet has been used to store um, original G.I. Joes still in boxes uh, that he hasn't found a place for yet in one of his other rooms. Uh, He's an interesting dude. I'll tell you about him sometime. (laughs) We bonded over Gundams and Far Cry the first time that I met him, and okay. uh, so that this, that was a good sign for meeting your girlfriend's parents. Yeah, whereas that's, um, whereas uh, that's my cool. friend Kat, who lives in Melbourne, uh, I went over for her uh, her wedding recently, and I got to see her parents' house, and it's this sort of um, big McMansion type place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the suburbs of Melbourne, and it's clearly been built up like to the edge of the block, and they've got a, a very nice kind of manicured front yard. And but you go inside, and everything in the house is white, like yeah, yeah, like everything, like every surface, every shelf, every desk, it's white. And I remember going upstairs to use the bathroom at one point because someone was using the downstairs bathroom, in that wedding sort of way when you find yourself wandering through someone's house. <laughs> And I go, so I go up, and I glance over to the side, and I see a room where it's like a white desk in the middle of a white room with white carpet and white walls and nothing on the walls, no shelves or anything. And I kind of think, huh, did they did they just move in? Because um, <laughs> I, I know, I know, like in my house, I, I live in my clutter. Like I've kind of shaped it around me. But the idea of having this like pristine space, I'm like, oh, did, did they did they forget about this room?
1: did did someone did was someone like raptured and now we just like (laughs) keep this room spare and clean in their memory that's it's always (laughs) they will be back it is interesting to be in those houses that don't feel lived in or have those rooms that feel very polished and mannered i'm not that type of person the (laughs) office that i'm in right now that is mine is is a gosh darn mess while my house was not like, I wouldn't say it was dirty cleaning up. It was not, it had, the architecture had a bit of like messy personality to it. It was obviously an older house, as we've discussed. And I certainly had friends that you'd go over and it's like, it almost has like an oppressive quiet to it. because you know what i mean like it's like all it's that that thing if you've seen ferris bueller it's like that museum house that
0: cameron lives in that's just kind of like chilling to look at and be in yeah Um, i had a friend like uh, my friend andrew his house was like that where his mother would vacuum three times a day and, uh, yeah, and like everything had that weird kind of vibe to it. Like I remember there was like one of those couches, you know how when you, you'd like put your hand one way on the fabric and it would kind of turn color a little bit. Like yes. When the, uh-huh. the fabric would pop out. I would sit there and I would be like, Oh, this is so cool. So I'd be watching TV whatever, and I would like draw on it, like see if I could write my name or whatever. <laughs> uh, and apparently he caught hell for that after I left with, uh, what is your friend <sighs> doing messing up our couch? And I'm just like,
1: Whoa, that's,
0: that's weird.
1: Well, you were trying to like claim ownership over their couch. You <laughs> were trying to, it. you were autographing their couch, and they didn't know why they would need your autograph.
0: Yeah, yet. I, cl- I claimed so. this house for the Republic of Burnaby and, the re- and for everything <laughs> it stands. <laughs> see, see I, can't, I can't even like joke do the pledge of allegiance. <laughs> <laughs> So c- coming back to your childhood, which sounds so sure. much more serious than it is, so did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Yeah, two older sisters
1: mm-hmm. who are about a year apart in age, and then I am five years younger. So I I don't think, I'm not like an accident baby or anything, but I was certainly not explicitly planned, I don't think. Okay, um, so
0: so with them, because uh, I was talking to Camille a little bit about this, about having siblings that are significantly older than you, rather than ones that are quite close. Sure. Did you feel that, like, were you you kind of the tag-along kid? Were you the—or were you, like, they were, like, sort of on the same tier as parents' indifference? Or was it something different at all?
1: It's somewhere in between, I think. Like, I was never—I never felt like I was trying to, like, butt into a conversation I wasn't part of. But I do think that I kind of just went off and did my own thing a bunch, Mm -hmm. whereas I know that their experience was— had a lot more competition, had a lot more ex- explicit agita to it. Mm-hmm. And I did not, I didn't develop the relationships that I have with them now until after I went away to college. Like I had to go away and go into my like pupa liberal arts college state and then emerge <laughs> from my chrysalis as some sort of adult. And then I could come back and have real conversations with them. I had a couple neighbors that I was really close with that I spent a lot of time outside of my own house. I didn't have, for whatever reason, I don't know why, it was the friends that I had combined maybe with how I kind of value my own private space, I guess, didn't have a lot of, didn't invite people over to my house the, as often as I went somewhere else, and I, I I actually can't pin that to anything in particular. But my neighbor across the street, I've been friends with a lot of Andrews in my life. Um, <laughs> so a kid across the street, Drew, who I was really close with for a couple of years, I was almost like a surrogate son in that family. Oh, that's nice. Um, a guy, a guy John down the street that I hung with, for, hung out with for many years. Similarly, spent a lot of time at their house. So yeah, I think there were parts. Of my home life that I was just kind of like, I'll see you guys later. Like, I'm going to go across the street for a weekend and (laughs) I'll be back on Sunday and get harangued for whether or not I did any of my homework, which I didn't do. Of course not. No, (laughs) I'm staying up till four in the morning, either like watching TV I shouldn't be watching or like running an emulator or doing something (laughs) that I shouldn't be doing, like low level piracy of some sort. (laughs) and I've been up till six in the morning and now it's Sunday and I'm asleep (laughs) but and then just kind of like you know just existing And and then by the time I got to middle and high school I was doing a lot of I was finding reasons to be busy after school for various activities not that I was explicitly like had to get out of the house I had a pretty good home life by all accounts but I was always off either hanging out at someone else's house eating their food or hanging out at school
0: as the kid who would drop in to other people's houses, what sort of kid was that? Like, give me, give me an idea of what young Craig was like.
1: Oh, man, he's such a good boy. Like, <laughs> young Craig didn't get in trouble. And I wonder what type of person I would be if I'd gotten in more trouble. And like I say, like, explicitly gotten into trouble for things. My mom is... Very patient and very caring and I feel like got some strict treatment from her mom that she kind of vowed never to do to her kids in terms of either silent treatment or whatever it might be. I cannot recall being grounded in any way, shape or form until high school when there was a project that I just clear blew off, like just, (laughs) just said, I'm not doing that.
0: When it was an open and shut case.
1: Yeah, and and I to the point where the you know the teacher was like, "Would you like to tell your mom that you're getting an F on this for not doing it or I can call her?" And I said, "I'll do it." And he said, "I'm proud of you." It's <laughs> a very weird <laughs> lesson that he decided to teach me in that moment. But I think my mom was just like surprised that I'd done something wrong. My buddy Drew as I was talking about, he acted out a lot more and got in trouble with his mom a lot small things he was also like uh his mom had remarried and he didn't get along great with his new younger siblings and so i was kind of a bystander to that and i was just i think like karmically i was there to be a calming force like i was there to be the capital g good kid and just kind of hang
0: out why can't you be more like craig
1: yeah, and I I feel bad even saying that because I, I kind of – I don't like anybody being in that position because you run into like – you put a weird onus on that kid when you're like, be more like that kid. And that kid's like, I was just being me. Like, I don't – don't emulate me. Like, I'm just over here doing my thing. <laughs> why, why are you like holding me up as some sort of a, like paragon example of good behavior? I don't know. Oh, I also got in trouble in kindergarten once for writing – on our kitchen wall with a pencil. Like I was just doodling. Mm -hmm. And again, I think my mom was confused because she punished me by not letting me like write for fun for like a day. Wait, what? (laughs) Like I, (laughs) I'm (laughs) like, if I had to do homework, like that was one thing, but I remember that it was like kindergarten and we had planned some sort of game at recess where I needed to have like, created a ticket to get into, like, the club or something. I don't, I don't know what we were doing. And I played a lot of pretend as a kid. And I, we'll get back to that, I suppose. And I wasn't able to participate because I'd been barred. I'd been censored, basically. <laughs> <laughs> because while I was doing my homework, I'd gotten bored and just started doodling on the wall, which was fine. It was... You know, it was pencil on white paint. It ultimately came off. I think.
0: And I think that's one of the one of those uh, decisions that you make when, you, I suppose, you're young enough really not to appreciate consequences. But oh yeah. Like it's it's like I can remember being on the phone at one point to one of my friends and, and like just talking, and like being next to a potted plant, and like kind of playing with the leaves a little bit idly as I was talking. And then I realized I'd accidentally like put my thumbnail edge a little too hard on one of the leaves and made a little half moon mark. Uh-oh. And, I, and I'm like, oh, okay. And then without thinking, I realized I had made a couple more and made a little pattern. Uh-oh. Like a little star. And then I kept doing it. And I remember my stepmother being really mad at me and saying, you know, that kills the leaf, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why would you do this? And I, and I couldn't come up with an answer. It was just like I was doing a thing. And that thing made a pattern, so I kept doing that thing. And when I stopped, I went, huh, cool. And I didn't think of it again. (laughs) And the the terrifying thing
1: about adulthood is that no one's there to get mad at you, usually. Like, you just do a thing.
0: And then the plant dies. (laughs) And then the plant dies. And then you have to reconstruct the steps to go back. Uh, All right, wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was me. Oh, I've ruined that thing I bought. Interesting. So now and then it's the equivalent of... Oh right, yeah, I did sign up to that wine club six months uh, ago for that tasting pack, and it came out just as I was paying off my next payment, and of something else, and that bounced, and then, yeah, suddenly I have four dollars in the bank. Cool, cool story.
1: That bro. that happened to me with a like a gym membership once, where like oh, I those was are brutal, yeah. Oh, they're so bad, and I was like subscribed to a gym, and then my card there was something wrong with the bank one weekend, where like anything i tried to do with my card that day was messed up and didn't work mm-hmm. and that was the day they were trying to bill me and then i just never renewed and i just said no i'm done i guess and three months went by before the gym was like we would like some money
0: please for like, but but i have an exercise i have like, not sweated sir re-
1: like remember that time that the bank said no your gym membership's over i thought that's what how this worked and I still get emails from them, not for the money, but for like trying to sign
0: up for it. And I, I just it makes me mad. And you, uh, you, you will not catch me again, sir. Nope. This is a <laughs> I honey. I have learned this, your method.
1: Yes, this this gym is some sort of honeypot for lazy people.
0: I can't abide it. <laughs> so, so, so coming back to uh, you mentioned you're you are a theater artist. Also, oh I was, yeah, I, I did appreciate that you said theater and not theater. Ooh, <laughs> I'm a theater artist. Ah. Uh.
1: I think I have to turn in my card if I... I don't have a card. I have to make... I have to write
0: one if I'm allowed you, to. Your, your pencil duties <laughs> haven't taken away your privileges. So And as a, I have to turn it as, in. Yeah, go ahead. As a theater artist, um, were you... like I, I have a particular person in mind when I think of the people who were in, in drama when I was in high school or Ooh, who yeah. got, in, got into improv or got into, into theater as an occupation. Uh, how did you fit in to to that scene? I mean, did you... Was it just something that you decided to do? Did you like fall into it? Or was it something where you're like, no, I'm going to attempt to do this? Uh,
1: I didn't. It's weird. I distinctly remember kind of sidling, like sidling into that crowd. Like, I had a bunch of really good friends that I'd gone to school with for many, many years. And, you know, you do the school play in elementary school. Like, you star in a play called Frankly Franklin that's a musical about Ben Franklin. And <laughs> that may be the most American
0: thing I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> there's and there's definitely a song where his gout sings to him <laughs> What? In a m I'm so I am like ready to preach the gospel of Frankly Franklin far and wide. Um yeah, he his like his eleventh hour like doubt song that's like kind of like he's at his low parts in his life, he's feeling like he's not accomplishing anything. Uh, Yeah, his gout sings to him, which we staged, my my fourth grade teacher staged, by putting a kid in, like, orange sweatshirt and pants. Oh, no. (laughs) And, of course, it was the kid who wasn't into it at all. Oh, no. (laughs) So, like, he did fine, but he was playing gout, and we all
0: knew it. So As as singing gouts go, he was a six out of ten.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh he'll do better on the national tour. Um So what we... you're saying is it
0: it was no hurricane. No, oh god, no, no it was not. It was uh ooh, it was a mess. <laughs> oh god, what what if Hamilton's foot had stung to him <laughs> about that time he was sick in the Caribbean?
1: I love anthropomorphized sickness. It's my favorite type of character.
0: See, there, there's a, there's an Australian musical that came about, about God, it was coming up on 10 years ago, uh, about Paul Keating, who was a prime minister. And it's a very good musical and very fun. And at one point, a ghost of a previous prime minister sings at him, and they're like, projected on the wall and stuff. Yes! And it's meant to be sort of this like idea of, okay, you're the next member of this party after this legendary figure. What are you going to do? And it's like, if that had only been... Like, his liver. Yes! God, that would have changed it so much. I'm going to oh, get Casey Bandit so on the phone. <laughs> I'm here for that. So,
1: I took a big break from that kind of stuff in middle school. I don't know what I was doing in middle school. I thought I was going to play sports. I played soccer, and I, I was on the wrestling team, which is, just don't do that. <laughs> and, and I was in band, and that was like my middle school experience. Oh, what did you play in band? Uh, I played the trumpet for a good number of years into high school, spent a year or two playing like French horn surrogates. Like I played the mellophone in marching band in high school because that's one of those instruments that no one signed up to play it.
0: It's up there with the flugelhorn in terms of market penetration.
1: Yeah, they, t- they took the kid who was willing to play it and thrust <laughs> it into his hands. And of course, it's like a, a low-rent mellophone. Like, it's not a shiny new one. It's the schools that they just send you home with. It has been kicked down many a stair. Yes, because no one understands it. It's like a trumpet <laughs> with, like, elephantitis. It's a weird instrument. <laughs> so, I took a big break from... What well, break? I, like didn't igno- didn't have any interest in acting or anything in middle school and got back into it in high school because you know like a bunch of my friends were doing it and that was the thing and start you know was in a couple musicals not in any big parts whatsoever experimented with the like the summer theater camp thing for 2 years and then uh, arbitrarily i guess decided that i was going to pursue that in my college career after being in a, like a quasi professional i don't think any of us got paid like straight play like a like by lanford wilson it was called book of days like it was an actual play play that i hadn't really done to that extent before and that was that was a big like moment for me where i went up to one of the one of the directors afterwards and i was like i think i'm gonna keep doing this this is
0: fun this is good and they're like good luck have fun to see, whereas I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure, if I had that director on this podcast, it would be like, I remember when this kid came up to me and said that, you know, being <laughs> in my play made him want to do this and that, really warmed my heart, and all I could say was, "Have fun,
1: have fun, good luck <laughs> with that." And so I wasn't,
0: I don't think I was your
1: stereotypical theater kid. Like my music, my knowledge of musicals is
0: really specific and spotty. What What was your big one? Because I, I have an answer for this, but I'd like to hear yours first.
1: So. We did Damn Yankees in high
0: school, so I have like a predilection to Cole Porter, but I don't know all of his stuff very well. I'm proud to say that the only thing I know about Damn Yankees is there's a Mystery Science Theater joke that refers to Van Dam and Van Dam in Van Dam Yankees. <laughs> and I have looked for every opportunity to use that joke because it is such a good joke.
1: Jean-Claude Van Damme is a is a joke. He like not and I don't mean that to disparage him, like his existence begets jokes.
0: So coming back to Cole Porter.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's coming back to Cole Porter, and that kind of jived with I I was also in, you know, I was in marching band, I was in concert band, I was in jazz band. So that Cole Porter kind of dovetailed with that. I fell down a rabbit hole of Jason Robert Brown musicals, the last five years being one that was like a really that was really big among the people that I was doing theater with in high school, so I kind of glommed on to that. But I And then, like, you go into college and it's like, oh, Wicked is happening. Oh, I saw The Lion King. That's a good show. But I, I'm not someone who can, like, quote Sondheim at you. I have a very passing acquaintance with anything Rogers and Hammerstein. And so I'm this—I I recognize that, like, I kind of have gotten into it because of some people who now maybe don't even work in theater at all. And I just kind of stuck with it because it seemed interesting.
0: I'm just thinking of it's like oh, oh, yeah, the, the people who dared themselves to get tattoos and then one went through and did it. <laughs> it was the guy who didn't want to do it in the first place.
1: <laughs> that is definitely my life. Every, we were like, oh, we're all yeah, we're all going to get tattoos. Yeah, let's do it. And then, like, I roll up with one, and everyone goes, oh, that's, maybe, yeah, I don't think I want one of those. I think I'm good. Damn it, Craig, you always do this. (laughs) You always take it, you always take it too far. This is more (laughs) fun when none
0: of us was doing, none of us were doing it. See, I was going to say, my my example of the musical was that my mom would play the uh, cast recording of Les Mis on very long car trips. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because it. And because it was a tape, you'd get to the end and it would just start over again. Mm. And uh, so it would be, yeah, Lorena McKinnett, Tori Amos, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and Les Mis. And so it's one of those things where as a kid, you don't even think about it. You're just, you sing along because if you know the words, you sing along.
1: Yes. And
0: it was only when I got to university that I was going, wait, okay, so there are people who actually like do this on the regular. It's not just people who have been in cars with their mom. It's like, <laughs> you know, the fact that I was hanging out with people who did musical theater, and we're like, oh, you know, talking about the the viewpoints within the different songs and these things, and I'm listening to it going, oh, yeah, maybe I should, you know, look into this a little more. Yes. Uh, although I did only get to see Les Mis, um, was it last year or the year before last? Oh, wow. And, and it was one of those things where my girlfriend actually got tickets to it as a present for me for our anniversary, and I was so happy. Like, it was, you know, 14th Revival touring company in Australia, but... I had those songs so deeply embedded in my head that I was listening to it. And I'm going, okay, I know where the change happens. I know, okay, you're doing something a little different here. And, oh, it's different because there's actual staging and you have to, you know, keep your breath going as you're running around and stuff. And uh, it, was, it was great. Like I loved it. And then I told my mom, who had originally got get me this bug, and I said, oh, you know, I finally went and saw it. And she went, oh, wait, didn't I take you to see that when, you know, when you were in university? I'm like, no, no, you took my sister. And you, you two went in Toronto. I wasn't invited. And she went, I was sure you were there. No, Mom, I wasn't. Don't under don't undercut my transcendent experience of finally singing this thing that I've been hearing since I was ten. No, I was sure I brought you. No, you didn't. You took me to Beauty and the Beast.
1: <laughs> Which is a, it's a fine show. Right. I, I, I I bought a T shirt you know, that had the logo there you on go. it
0: and it was a really comfy shirt, but I was embarrassed to wear it to school because yeah. Beauty and the Beast was Sorry, I know this is outdated term. Was a girls' Disney Disney movie at the time?
1: At the time, it certainly was. Yes, I think I think now we can kind of look back on the Menken years and with a with a some fondness and wishing that they were that they were still with us because those were some those were some good years. Lion King was a formative experience for me. That was I saw that play I saw that musical twice while I was in high school. Once in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, young Simba. Asked Mufasa what he was talking about at one point, which hey, I hey, was. Hey, hey, hey,
0: talk, talking
1: about. <laughs> As a high schooler, I was not prepared for that experience, and then Dad, saw it what again. Attacking talking about? <laughs> uh, saw it God, again. Simba of
0: DeGrassi Street.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really weird when all when all the hockey players came out. Um, and then. I saw it on Broadway, and it was—it's astonishing. It's—it's it's a really powerful piece of theater, even if you're like familiar with the film. Like, it is very
0: theatrical and well executed.
1: Well, I imagine
0: from it just from a technical standpoint, I mean, it'd be yeah, it's super complicated.
1: Yeah, and and it's a shame that kind of the the Spider-Man stuff and other issues oh, have Jesus, I'd kind of. That. Kind of sullied Julie Taymor's reputation in recent years because I do think she's a very, very talented artist and she's proven herself a number of times, uh, and it's just a shame that 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 project became her albatross, her Heaven's Gate. Yeah, <laughs> but that that show for me was, was very. I hung my hat on that. I was like, "This is this is cool. This is what people. This is a way that you can make someone feel in an auditorium about a thing." And then I went to college and got like very intellectual and cerebral about theater, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And now, now I work at a theater that is prominent. It's not all classics, but there is a there is a traditional vein running through even the even the contemporary work that we pick. That allows us both to explore form. But also kind of means we're always doing something with strong language. We're always doing something with strong character that is a little bit more traditional. We're not doing. We're not going to do something that's too abstract. Except Beckett. Like Beckett <laughs> does. I don't know how familiar with Sam Beckett you are, other than Godot. I was gonna say, not terribly, but don't let that stop you. He he has been canonized so thoroughly that it that you forget how weird some of his stuff is like there's a play called Not I where a woman speaks for i think like 30 minutes and the lights are just on her lips like she the way okay. that they staged it recently is the the actress like clambers into this not a chair but like an apparatus where the front of it is like in in a curtain and there's a pinpoint light on her mouth and she speaks like basically broken stream of consciousness poetry for half an hour or so like i guess that's a play i think it happens on a stage therefore it, ha- it is play. <laughs> it's, it is an event that you can pay money to see and maybe
0: regret it if it didn't make you feel anything i don't it, it is a, it is a standard length of play cut, cut me off a length <laughs> of play they said
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that gets jumbled into you know Arthur Miller, which is seeing a weird revival right now where people do weird things with Arthur Miller, or even, I'm trying to think of other playwrights that people are like really into right now, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an, especially in America where theater is kind of, you've got your Hamiltons on Broadway, uh, you've got your all the way about Lyndon Johnson starring Walt, Walter White from Breaking Bad. Okay, wait, 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 there's a Lyndon
0: Johnson play?
1: Yes, called all the way.
0: Yeah, did it exist before Hamilton, or is this like one of those like fake Da Vinci Code books that sit next to the cash register?
1: I it's a no. <laughs> uh, it is not a musical in any way, so it is just a play. But it, I think, it was probably developed concurrently with Hamilton. It was, uh, it's a, it's a big sweeping uh, epic of that time. So, so you,
0: you're just saying that the historical figures were in the zeitgeist a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think I think as we here in the states wrestle with who the heck are going to be our historical figures, you know, forty fifty years from now, and how we feel about that, mm-hmm. we are we are very keen to look to the past for any lesson that we
0: can learn. Well, also, I think uh, you know you, you have a bit of a, a rise of critical thinking and deconstruction and the idea of finding new narratives in that history.
1: That's that is true. I, I think. Uh, one of the waves that I'm certainly behind on but I'm very interested in is is this idea of what stories have we not been telling, uh, whose group's stories have we not been telling, and mm-hmm. how do we create space for them. Uh, and it's something that I'm interested in as an educator. I don't know where – I know this is supposed to be like – some of this is how did you become the way you are, and I don't know how I became – the teacher part of who I am. So like in addition to directing plays, which I made that transition sometime in college. I don't really remember. I am also a theater educator and I, and I run our theaters education department. And that comes with it this like all of our work is in service of someone else's work. Like we are we are the experts on plays and we go to whoever might need that expertise. And I but I don't know if I can point to where that impulse me came from except a long line of
0: good teachers. I don't know. Okay, well that, that's interesting. Is there any particular um, teacher that that made a mark on you that you remember? Yeah,
1: yeah, and I guess that that points similarly to this. I like when I was thinking about what we might end up talking about on this show. Like, there's a bunch of pinpoints of things I was really interested in, types of music or authors or playwrights or whoever it might be that I developed an affinity for because a teacher made a strong enough case for them, right? Okay. I had a couple really good teachers in high school. Mr. Schertz was one of them who... I got a, re- a lot of reverence for the short story in that class. You know, okay. your Vonnegut short stories, your even Faulkner short stories. Miss Ebersall was our English teacher who also did a lot of drama. So that's where I... You know, I have an affinity for for Greek theater that I don't I only sort of know how to put into practice and it's not even completely uh, it's not even like a thing I think about too often but I just have like if you're doing Greek drama like I'll be there to see how it turns out just because I think there's something to it I think there's a communal aspect to that style of to that style of play rather not even style of performance that is the whole reason that that art form exists that I want to make space and time for my band director was also like a cool guy. I don't know if Mr. Washam
0: was a cool guy. You know, cool teachers has become such a cliche, but I can think of, yeah, at least a couple. And they, were never, they weren't always, you know, the young, hip teacher that people pictured. No. All you need is somebody who engages with you a little bit.
1: Yes, seriously. And I, for me, it's about teachers who are not afraid to show their enthusiasm for something. Mm-hmm. And say that this is something that matters to them in any of the teaching work that I've done and some of my colleagues, some of my better colleagues. I know that that has really gotten a lot of respect from and made a really big impact on students where you by being willing to place personal investment in something, be it. Mm-hmm music you really like or you're willing to commit your life to this art form or whatever it is you're teaching that makes hopefully you're communicating something to the to the student that says it's okay to value the thing you value even if it makes you look a little odd even if it if it is not what everyone else is doing but if you care about it enough and think it's important like go go pursue that and figure out what it means to you because what the things that have the things that have meant something to me have led me to this path where now I get to pass that on to you.
0: That's really cool. I like that. And it's a little bit like, um, oh, God, I'm going to butcher the quote now. But uh, Glenn Weldon, when he was talking about Suicide Squad, gave a very kind of erudite and sounding preplanned, because it's Glenn Weldon, <laughs> uh, quote about how the love of the antihero is a result of cynicism. Yeah. And mm-hmm. whereas love of a straightforward hero is is something that comes out of hope and optimism. Sure. And therefore is less cool, but is, uh, frankly, is is believing in something, it's taking a chance. Yeah. And I, I think that's sort of that, that thing you're talking about with a teacher who really cares, um, who, who cares about the, t- the subject, not just like, oh, I'm reaching out to the kids, but this idea of, no, th- this is a really interesting thing. And I think, like, I can think of a few off the top of my head that were really interested in that stuff and, and can almost, like, tie a direct constellation line back to certain works that I'm very interested in purely because someone I trusted went, Hey, I think you'd like this and hands it to me.
1: Yeah. There's that kind of that choice. Like I know there's, there's a lot of power in giving a kid choice of any kind. Mm -hmm. And so creating a space where a student gets to choose to be interested in something rather than, than just having to read it for assignment is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, I distinctly remember, like, so I think it was eighth grade, our class had to read either Fahrenheit 451 or Lord of the Flies. I oh, think I ended up reading both, just because, and oh, yeah. and I still have very fond. I mean, those books are not things to like read and
0: feel good about the world, <laughs> but but should, I do really... like burning books or <laughs> killing killing kids with glasses. <laughs> because i'm good for either
1: i'm good for (laughs) what about dystopian futures that are really eerie when you read it today or the one where all the kids killed each other
0: that's which one do you like more do you want to see your future political spectrum or do you want to see your playground right now
1: (laughs) god some of that stuff in Fahrenheit 451 i read it mm, seven or eight years ago as a reread and like all the stuff where the walls are giant TVs that you get to participate in mm-hmm. is like some Twitch stream nonsense that's <laughs> happening right now.
0: It's Twitch plays Pokemon, but, you know, with the world.
1: Yeah, like well, the whole thing where like his wife gets to like recite lines in the soap opera that's on her like wall television mm-hmm. so that she can participate in it is crazy they refer to the clamshells or whatever that she wear, like the little like or earbuds that she wears mm-hmm. and i saw all the apple news last week that had <laughs> all of those wireless earbuds in them and it gets a little wally when you think about it that way mm-hmm. so yeah that that book is
0: scary i, I know how you feel a couple years ago um, i bought a new kindle that came with a whole bunch of free books and i got 1984 and over christmas i was like you know, sit down and read 1984 because i never actually have read it <laughs> and i'm like this is interesting for the first two thirds and now i just want i just i just want to go lay down oh god yeah oh god oh. yeah and then, yeah it, and looking and looking back at it now at the two minute hate and going oh yeah politics huh yeah those are those books that you read them in
1: school and you they're abstracted it's you're you're thinking about the themes you're you're figuring out how plots and characters are delivered by an author and then you're passing vocabulary tests and then you read them as an adult and they're just terrifying like, <laughs> because when you were reading them before there was nothing at stake except your grades and now your mortgage is at stake also like nuclear war or whatever it might be <laughs> also that year i, I kind of i know I, I want to talk about this is i was given the book by my mom i was given ender's game my mom so i I was listening to one of your earlier shows and you you said you have no no great affection for the
0: expanded star wars universe which is fine Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's a very hit or miss affair i've seen it i've seen people die on that hill and i have (laughs) decided i am not going to be one of those people
1: so i it's it's a messy messy hill
0: but so i was reading a lot of those in middle school and that's fine whatever would you get uh, like splinter in the mind's eye like what did you go into
1: the the jedi academy trilogy okay the young Jedi tri- like series of books was was a lot. I spent a whole summer reading those. I also spent a lot of time reading the what it, what equates to nonfiction in that universe, okay. where you're where like I have the big book of Star Wars ships, yep. and yep. it's written as
0: if it were a real encyclopedia about real things. As someone who bought the Star Trek technical manual at a yard sale, yes. Uh, Okay,
1: okay. Uh huh. So I'm I'm jamming on that for most of middle school, and then my mom gives like hands me Ender's Game for like Christmas and says, "I thought you might like this. It has a spaceship on it. Here you go." And little did I know that that would be like a huge book for me. I have a signed copy of that book. Oh wow! From Orson Scott Card. My friend got it for me for my birthday. I am a third child like that's a big part of Ender Wigan like he's a third child and and like I read the entire speaker series which is very very good until it gets crazy yep (laughs) (laughs) I read I read most of the like the Ender Shadow series and then bounced off it because it
0: got weird also, um, sh- short side note: uh, I ended up reading. Yeah, I read *Red Enders' Shadow* as well, and my digital ebook copy had a weird typo where Uh-oh. every time they wanted to write "arms," they wrote "anus." No, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yes. So it'll be like Bean pushed himself into the corner, <laughs> laid his head upon his anus, and fell asleep. <laughs> That's Ta- talk awful. about breaking suspension of disbelief.
1: <laughs> And then you have to do that mental find replace for
0: the rest of the book. Yeah, and especially because like no, he would be pulling himself through tunnels, and so he he um he <laughs> <laughs> hooked onto a bar and used the strength of his hands to pull himself. No, out. yep.
1: There's the, what okay. I also I will go on the record and say that I think Ender's Shadow, while it may be an interesting book in its own right, cheapens Ender's
0: Game. That's one of the parallel novels that I cannot get behind yeah. uh, because... It's just that you know, it assigns all of Ender's cool actions to... Oh, yeah, it was secretly Bean manipulating things. Oh,
1: oh, Bean was just playing fancy football with all of Battle Academy or whatever and like made this stuff happen behind his back. And so all of the qualities about Ender are like irrelevant because this super genius orphan kid did it all himself. that <laughs> No thanks. Uh, the lessons... It cheapens the lessons from the original book ender would have failed if not for beanie sue i know so (laughs) the the thing that i the here's another soapbox that i'll die on for this whole thing that series is a weird experience for me because i recognize that orson scott card is now like a terrible person he is deeply problematic he is yes that's a gentler way of putting it um he has a lot of bigoted views a lot of arch political views that I certainly don't agree with, but that cross the line from just being about like economic policy or how he feels about military intervention and into hate speech and bigotry and, and homophobia. And I can't get behind that. And I've talked about this on overdue, I think, but I've certainly ranted about it elsewhere on the internet before. I'm sure that it's really frustrating to me as someone who read this book that is about kind of, you know, a l- not quite a, a, you know, a bit of a runt, and I I don't think that I was a runt as a kid, but a kid who, who is a little like, okay, where do I fit in, mm-hmm. Who is then said, no, you are special and we need you, here's where you do fit in um, and it's a very hard journey, and then like the end of that book is like Lo- in a weird way, because it involves the destruction of a species, mm-hmm. um, love is the answer. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, uh,
0: now, that, now that you say it that way, I think it's both an example, but also a subversion of those typical narratives where it's like, where it's like oh, you have Ender stepping up to achieve his destiny and, becoming, and getting acknowledged for being special. But when that specialness is used, horrible things happen. And he so, then has oh, to yeah. redefine himself as, okay, I'm going to be special in a different way.
1: And and it yeah it gets
0: exploited.
1: Um, and then Speaker for the Dead is this awesome book, this awesome book about understanding the other and using science fiction to like explore what an other could be, like down to the idea that there might be a microorganism that is not maybe not sentient, but impactful enough to an ecosystem that we need to to think about it as a species or it as
0: uh, another form of life that that is owed respect. I remember that book was actually the first. First off, I had read Ender's Game in, in high school. I'd, I'd uh, My English teacher had a box of paperbacks and said anyone could, you know, borrow from them and bring yeah, it back. Yeah, yeah. And I borrowed Ender's Game and read it so much that I eventually didn't give it back. So, hey, art's so good, <laughs> it makes you commit theft. And, I've got a bunch of those. Yep, uh-huh. and... Um, and then what happened is that I think years later I was on like a summer vacation, and I found that my mom's local library had Speaker for the Debt, and I went, "Oh my yep. God, there's a, there's a sequel? There's more of these?" Mm-hmm. And I picked it up expecting, you know, uh, you know, Academy Adventures and tactics and you know, launchies going Nova and stuff like that, and that, and and just like during a car trip, fell smack dab into Speaker for the Debt, and it was not what I was expecting. But you're right, it is something where I still think about it now. I mean, there's a lot of social stuff going on in that book, and the idea of the other—even Jane, the AI, and the idea of Ender casually switching her off so she's not talking in his ear for a second, and the description of how that basically quietly drives her insane because she is an intelligence at a higher level, and you basically just cut off her communication for what to use a second, and she goes nuts in that second.
1: Yep, Uh, and the later books get a little messy. They go outside of the universe and bring back clones from their mind—
0: it's a little, it's... Okay. Uh, see, maybe I'm I'm older and cynical now, but the minute you say clones from outside the universe, I'm just picturing the <laughs> cowboy alternate universe from Futurama where everyone's the same, <laughs> just everyone's a cowboy.
1: That's way better than what happens in Children of the Mind where, like, the, the f- new alien bugger queen, like, teleports them outside of the known universe and then, like idealized versions of real people spring forth out of Ender's head. Um, It's yeah, it gets messy and kind of gets away from what speaker is up to in a, in a really loving way. And so then to, to that is a, was a really interesting experience for me as a young, like late teen becoming an adult and realizing here's someone who wrote a book that's very important to me and hit me at exactly the right time. And now I cannot get behind who they are as a person it also fundamentally that's a frustrating disconnect between the message from their own work that has moved me so much right mm-hmm. so what am i what do i do with that and it's i don't know a lot of the work that i'm doing now and a lot of the things that i'm interested in and a lot of what andrew and i try and do on overdue is just be like we, we try not to tear things down too often unless it's like blatantly necessary mm-hmm. um <laughs> cuz you know, Dan Brown is going to Dan Brown and that's fine.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> S- some angles th- need to get dropped.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. But really just like trying to extend that like who the heck is anyone else to me, to themselves, to the system in which they exist and give them the benefit of the doubt. And it was very it was very educational to in a in a painful way, I think, to watch Someone or learn about someone from whom you helped learn that lesson because the things that we read and and the things that we uh, Take in as kids do kind of shape who we are just just blatantly ignore that that lesson that sprang out of their
0: heart and the mind in the first place Very weird. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things and I mentioned this to Andrew as well I, What I do like about overdue is That what while it is okay some of it is just hey, let's goof on this thing that's silly in retrospect um, but some of it is also just about approaching these works and maybe this is why this thing was is or was seen as important and this is maybe why we should think about it in a slightly different way And so and you know not to get too up your butt on this but I think like t- hearing you talk about about teachers that were formative, there is a bit of that too you guys do actually care about what you're saying. Oh certainly mm-hmm. and you want you want people to be interested. you don't just it's not you, people don't just come for the snark. You know? I hope not,
1: and and I also think there are people out there doing both the literary analysis better than us mm-hmm. and the snark better than us. But I don't know, like our job is to combine them in this weird way, and it, and it's not always even snark; it's just terrible humor um, that makes us laugh. So <laughs> oh, oh, trust me, I, that. I got real mad at one of your episodes because <laughs> I'm just like, no, 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 just just listen, listen, and no. we and. We, And we also know that we're never gonna, we're not making the show that's going to satisfy everyone's take on something. Mm -hmm. Like that's not the point. And our point is to kind of honestly respond to something that we read, and then maybe spend some time wondering why people have cared about it, or why the author cared enough to write it. Like that is sometimes an exercise enough just to think, like, why did someone choose to write this story? Why? Did then enough people read this story that someone would recommend this to us now? And really just kind of making space for that in your head mm-hmm. is, is an interesting experience. I, I think a lot about the, which now is like passed around with a twinge of sadness, quote from David Foster Wallace about novels making you feel less alone. Like I think it's something like I'm bastardizing the quote. It's something like the goal of of fiction is to make the reader feel less alone or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that's really and,
1: nice. And of course, like that is coming from an author who later took his own life, and there's mm. a lot of complications about that. And if you can you can do a reading of his work that ends in that act, or you can do a reading of his work that is. Someone's explicitly fighting that act, or you could just read his work and just take it for what it is. And I don't know that we ever pick any one of those paths specifically for the authors that we talk about, but it is certainly something worth thinking about. Um, yeah, and I guess that yeah, I guess that does relate to a lot of the teachers I've had because I, I can point to like specific works that I'm at least curious about or things that I'm interested in because of various teachers that I've had. I still remember weird anecdotes from middle school teachers. Like, I remember the time that my geometry teacher, like... Climbed up a, like, he walked up a wall once as a joke.
0: Okay, so like your geometry did. teacher was, in fact, what was it Danny Kay or?
1: Yeah. <laughs> he did a, like, you are, he did a, like, you kids are driving me up the wall bit. Oh my, oh my and, God, like, there was a pun. Oh,
0: that's yes. genius.
1: And, like, planted his hands on his heavy desk and then, like, walked his feet up the wall. And he was way too <laughs> old to be doing this. I don't know. And I don't know how he survived it, but. <laughs> good for him. These are interesting.
0: I am mindful a little bit of the time, but I'm going to take a sharp left turn because he specifically asked me before we started the show uh-huh. to ask you about the Internet Wrestling League. Oh boy. Ne- never have I had a teaser question that piqued my interest so much. <laughs> This okay. This might cover a
1: lot of ground that I expected us to talk about, so this is good. So I don't know that any of your previous guests have have appreciated your affinity for wrestling
0: uh, as they should have. There, there, there are a couple. i uh, Ray is actually on a wrestling podcast and is okay. And good. Do, does one about the death of WCW, and we have great conversations on oh, Twitter. Man, but we actually just got really deep into D and D that that episode. We didn't talk about wrestling, so please yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm itching to hear about so this. so. Uh, Just at a very base level, a good friend of
1: mine, an improv guy from college, made a really good case while we were watching, like, eating fried chicken and watching watching WrestleMania my senior year, because that's what you do,
0: after having not watched... Hey, with me, it was was chicken, (laughs) bacon, sun-dried tomato pizza, and watching videotapes of Royal Rumbles. So, yeah, please, go ahead.
1: (laughs) After having not watched wrestling for, like, 10 years, like, that's the thing, is I I don't follow it week in and week out. Mm -hmm. I really couldn't name... Most of the people actually wrestling now if they're under the age of 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was a huge part of me up and of like my media experience up until like sixth or seventh grade. And my friend Andy said something about it kind of being this version of vaudeville entertainment that I really it's a mix of like comic books and vaudeville that is really successful where you are very aware of the audience you're doing everything for the audience's benefit if you're doing it right and then it's you're you're also tossing in these like larger than life cartoon characters which in the 90s was even a bigger part than of wrestling than it is today oh was um it? where where like literally we were supposed to believe that the undertaker had been risen from the dead and that he was like summoning lightning bolts from the sky and lighting people on fire
0: and to a lesser extent that uh you know Isaac Gankum DDS was a dentist who wrestled on the weekends.
1: <laughs> or that Sergeant Slaughter was now actually, like, working for the Middle East and had defected. Hey, Sergeant Slaughter and he was a G.I. Joe a real...
0: before that, and then he defected, which made the hurt even worse.
1: <laughs> he came out of the cartoon, became a real man, and then defected. It was painful. Or that the sting, or that sting was not just a man with... Like, he changed into
0: The Crow, yeah, he was the a movie, dude, personified. And, and he, he got his heart broken so bad because Sting <laughs> is the dumbest man in wrestling. He trusts too many bad guys. And he got his heart broken so bad that he hung out in the rafters with a baseball bat and would, like, swing at people. And if they didn't flinch, then they were good guys. I just appreciate that
1: like they were willing to just graft a whole movie franchise onto him
0: and never explicitly acknowledge it. Oh my god, I'm so going to link you to the greatest podcast (laughs) in the history of our sport where they talk about the time that Robocop (laughs) saved Sting. Like real RoboCop, like not even like zero numbers filed oh, off, but God. it was a tie-in. Also, Chucky made fun of Rick Steiner once. It, I it, think it. I remember. Yeah, I think I remember that. Oh, Rick um, the thing is, what you've been saying really dovetails. Uh, there's a guy named Mike Quackenbush. Which take a moment to appreciate that name. That's a great name. And uh, he he runs a company called Chikara, Chikara Pro. And I've heard of I've heard of Chikara. Oh, okay, yeah. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, they are like the whole point of Chikara is that. It's for fun. Yep. You must have fun. That is the rule for the live shows, and that is the rule for the content. Mm -hmm. And because they are stepping away from this is a real sport and we have to be serious about this, you get A, ridiculous, over-the-top characters, like there's a trio of ants. Yes. There's worker ant and soldier ant and fire ant. Yes. And then when they expand uh, the colony, they get the equivalent of the G.I. Joe action force, where you get things like (laughs) missile assault ant. And what? then it's revealed that Missile Assault Ant was really a person named Missile Assault Man. No, uh, and he rebelled against the colony. And all the ants talk in Pokemon speak, so he all he says is Miss- Missile Assault Ant. Wrestling is the dumbest. It's amazing. There's also uh, a an entire wrestler based off of the Walt Simonson Thunder Frog uh, storyline in <laughs> Thor, where he is a, he is Thor, but he is also a frog, and he hangs out with Oleg the Usurper. And Princess Kimberly the princess who can save herself <laughs> which I love it, it which is so to this, dumb this beautiful moment where I think it was Princess Kimberly this story has been told many times uh, but where Princess Kimberly is locked in a submission hold and a little kid stands up in the front row and yells she can save herself and my my cold heart like broke into five pieces that day that's amazing uh, and thing is the oh. end- and Mike, Mike Quackenbush gave a very um He was on the Art of Wrestling podcast with Colt Cabana, which is a very good podcast. Okay. Uh, And he gave this very impassioned speech about how wrestling is performance art. And he goes through it in a little way, the way you did, where it's like, you know, it's performance art in a way that a lot of performance art is not, in that there is physical impact. You can reach out and touch the wrestlers. It is actually happening there in front of you. And while it is recorded, if you're there, it's an experience that is not to be replicated. And the only mm-hmm. way I can really solidify this argument in my own experience is that I a couple of years ago, I went to Japan for the first time. Oh, wow. Uh, my girlfriend's a quarter Japanese and can speak Japanese. So I got kind of the less touristy vibe, which is great. Oh, good, good. I always recommend traveling with a native speaker. I've done that through Germany and through Japan. And it's so much of a better experience than being a tourist. I imagine. I All I said was, all right, look, I, I don't know anything about Tokyo. I mean, I can read a guidebook and say, oh, I'd love to go to this temple, or I'd love to go to this store. Uh, but really what I want to see is I want to see some pro wrestling. Yes. And I knew that there was no way I could get into like an NJPW show. Um, I, there's no way I could get into all these things. But Dragon Gate is this very high impact, very athletic, like lots of flippity stuff and uh-huh. like strong strikes. And we were able to get into the Karakuen Hall fourth row for something like the equivalent of $65. Wow. And so I went to the show where I did not speak the language. I didn't know the history of the athletes. I didn't know the history of the characters. I didn't know who was aligned with who, and I couldn't understand what the announcers were saying. All I could see was what was happening in the ring, and it was the best pro wrestling experience of my life.
1: Oh, because it's all just visceral emotion. Oh yeah. Like it's there's no you don't need to know what's. I mean, at that point, you're like seeing opera. That's a terrible exactly. equivalent. But here, <laughs> what here, am here's the saying? thing, though: is
0: that <laughs> within that, you got you got this very strong hard-hitting matches, like, as as the climax, where with every, like, kick or strike, you were going, yes, and you were feeling it in your heart, and uh, my girlfriend had to look away at certain points because she Uh thought a guy had actually been killed, Uh, but then you also had these amazing comedy matches where you oh, have, like, three-on-three matches where at one point someone takes someone's glove, which happens to be rubber, like, ties it to his lip, and then runs to the back row of the arena... To like, and it stretches the whole way, and you think, "Oh, he's gonna let it go and whiplash him in the face." But the good guy who's tied up gets out and lets go, and it flies all the way back, and it knocks him off the back row of the steps.
1: That's clever. That's see, you you don't get that as much now. You don't get the goofy, like purposefully goofy wrestling.
0: For a little bit, they tried it, and you'd get one or two characters that would do that, but they wouldn't get very far because. Wrestling in America, like, is really standing on this idea of, oh, it has to be real and it has to be like serious, and that's where you get stuff like Chikara, which is like, you know, we are gonna be, you know, they're happy to be, yeah, we're we are a cartoon, we are here to have fun, uh, mm-hmm. and then you get stuff like Lucha Underground, which is um, produced by Robert Rodriguez, and so instead of oh, promos, wow. they have uh, telenovela style vignettes. That's smart. Where that's very story- smart is secretly about this guy, you know, who starts up a thing to attract luchadors, but he's secretly gathering an army of undead luchadors in service to his Aztec god and his skull of thr- is a skull throne and it's amazing. I love it. And also it's the in-ring g- work is phenomenal.
1: So That's the thing. Like if if the athleticism is there and the actual like matches are entertaining, everything else is just in service of that and you you have to take it for what it is. Um no matter how silly it is, so so I do want to I do want to talk about this dumb internet wrestling thing that yes, I did. Let's hear it. Which I don't even know how I found out about it. I couldn't even tell you what it's called because I'm scared to like go Googling to find it. <laughs> but this was like fifth or sixth grade, and I don't know who else was doing it. It could have been like fifty year old dudes. Like I don't know who was running oh, this. Oh, I
0: can guarantee you it was fifty year old
1: dudes. <laughs>
0: and I. <laughs> Like, so
1: what it was, was basically like a website, which looked terrible. Um, It was like a GeoCities website and a, like an email club effectively where everyone who was participating had some sort of person, like you had a wrestling character that you had created and that you got submitted into the, into the show and you would write like these promos like you would write a promo mm-hmm. uh, and it would you know like you're writing like a little script like you'd say where your character was
0: In- and interior would... day
1: oh yep uh-huh <laughs> let me tell I th- you something I think, jack <laughs> so i think i, I was listening to, as as someone who's really pleasant and generally an enthusiast for things you might be surprised to find that i listened to a lot of metal as okay. a kid and I think I was like attempting to be angry about it, and it never really took. <laughs> so I, I was like, re- I was really into Metallica, and and that was fine. Oh,
0: Bless. See, I'm I'm you're I'm right there with you. My first concert was was Metallica, and, I'm I, and I very had the, jealous the terrible uh, binge and purge box set that came with the stencil. I got that for Christmas one oh, year. Oh,
1: oh yeah, with the okay. three videotapes
0: right. of the live performance <laughs> in like Mexico City, the Year
1: and the Life thing, and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So. I had this character that I'm fairly certain was, I think his name, I think he was called Lucifer. Of course. And I think he was basically like an intelligent cane. Like he was an artic, he was like an articulate cane. So I would write these promos that were ba- mostly took place in like boiler rooms and basements. Okay. And I would like adapt Nine Inch Nails lyrics into threatening monologues. Oh to god. strangers. Oh my god. Ab- about how I was going to destroy them and beat them up and then you and then you would submit them and then they had people, I don't know who did this. There was someone that I was sending these emails to and then they decided which of those promos they liked more and basically created what would now be like a tiny letter newsletter that would go out to everyone who had subscribed to it. That was the event, right? and they would put in the promos that they liked and then they would use however they liked those promos to decide who should win which matches and then they had people writing matches like just in a text file and i if i went back and read it it would probably be the most boring thing i've ever seen craig i want
0: to hug you right now this is so great (laughs) It's so
1: dumb. And so like I had I think I had a submissive like a submission hold mm-hmm. like armbreaker hold that was like the seventh circle of hell or whatever <laughs> dumb nonsense. Of course it was. I because of course and of course I picked my walk out music was like an instrumental metallic track that not a lot of people knew about because no <laughs> one cared
0: about those. The first four minutes of Through the Never. <laughs> Uh,
1: no, it was the um, it was the instrumental track from "And Justice for All."
0: Oh, see, I thought you were going to go with it from "Master of Puppets." It was going to be Orion, but no. That's... Yeah, that's a yeah. Uh,
1: so then, so then, like, there was someone who was the Vince McMahon of this dumb internet web ring <laughs> Quince who was McQuain. deciding <laughs> Quince McQuackenbush, who would decide who was winning and losing. There were stables of people that would like. So then, like, someone was writing, like, a stable fighting someone else. And I, I, this is the weird thing, is that I don't think there was anyone reading it who was not also participating. Like, they were not creating a product for an audience elsewhere. It was really just this, like, fiction writing workshop (laughs) where we all agreed to write wrestling characters... And I've I think I wrote a couple matches, not that I not that my character was in because that probably would have been, you know, circumspect. (laughs) Um, I might have. I don't know if I ever got a belt. I'm fairly certain I was gunning for the equivalent of the like Intercontinental Championship. Yeah, I can see Lucifer Um, being
0: a good mid card worker. Yeah,
1: he's a he's a good mid card heel. Yeah, who's there to who's there to like threaten to
0: end careers, but never quite gets to do it. So you realize you you've basically written Bray Wyatt long before the time. (laughs) Bray Bray Wyatt is uh, again fairly recent. Came up as like he was a like kind of a second banana to a couple of bad guys as the oh god what was the name? It wasn't Michael McGillicuddy, I think, or something. Some terrible like just sort of chosen out of a hat name. And then yeah, he came yeah. back as Bray Wyatt with this sort of terrifying, like devil-possessed hillbilly gimmick. Yes. And he came out with the Wyatt family, who were these two huge dudes with beards, one of whom would wear like a sheep's mask to her, to the ring. Of course. and, they were brain- and he would Like give, hill people. He would give these like okay. terrifying um, uh, promos <laughs> as like referring to <laughs> himself as the eater of worlds and that you should follow the buzzards. And at one point he had a uh, children's choir singing he's got the whole world in his hands it's oh it, it is high theater it's amazing i love it the showmanship's
1: insane and it does sound like he basically someone found my monologues and gave them to him for him to read it was garbage oh i love it hey
0: as someone and who I, had to create a creator wrestler named nightshade uh yeah i can't fault you man i can't (laughs) i I just i don't i feel like a this is one of those things where i feel
1: like a going back to our tattoo metaphor earlier i feel like a friend got me into it and then that kid bounced like that kid was like this is too weird (laughs) for me and i was the one who's like i'm gonna take this and run with it and not i don't think i've told anyone about this this is great excellent so dumb and, and again it's 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 I like uh, we didn't talk about like we haven't talked about games or anything like that we which don't is, have to I mean, it's a <laughs> this is amazing. no
0: it's like but, frankly going from uh, <laughs> theater and teachers to uh, you know secret internet goth wrestling I, this, this is why I do this this is why I do what I do All right, great. We're, we're, I, I was gonna say we're a little bit short on time so I think we'll wrap it up uh, if okay you, if people want to find you on the internet where would they find your stuff
1: The first thing they should do is go listen to Overdue. It's at OverduePodcast.com, hosted with Andrew, who was previously on this show. He's a great guy, and we do a fun show. Um, You can find me on Twitter at MCGetting. Oh, I never even got Um, to ask
0: you what the M stood for.
1: Oh, so the M stands for Mylan, which is a name I never use and comes from my dad's side of the family, and he never used it. but. He was like, "My, gonna give it to my son." My mom was like, "Are you sure about that?" And <laughs> he said, "Yep." So that was always a good first day of school. Of like, "Well, no, you could
0: just call me Craig. It's fine." It, it does sound like uh, a material used to build part of the space shuttle. Well,
1: yes, it's that, and it's spelled like the Italian city of Milan, oh, and no. it's a, and it's a Czech, it's a Czechoslovakian name. So it's like there's no good way to come at that name. If you've never encountered it before, so yeah, so that's that's where the MC comes from, um, <laughs> that, and can, then you were if you about, want, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, and if you're interested at all in Philadelphia theater and you're in the area, um, you can go to lanterntheater.org dot org and see uh, the work that I do there. Um, but that's probably like the odds of that are probably low, just because the internet means everyone's listening, so. Who knows where they're from, um, but if you happen to be in Philly and want to see some stuff, like hit me up, see me, find me on Twitter. I'll let you
0: know. Okay. Well, thanks, Craig. This has actually been a really good conversation. It, it was nothing <laughs> like I expected, but I'm I'm very happy with it. Thanks for having me, Lucas. This was great. thanks to M. Craig Getting for his time. Craig specifically asked for a beer and whiskey cocktail, so I reached into my repertoire and have created, in honor of Samuel Beckett, the Pennsylvania Impromptu. The particular combination of beer and whiskey that I've chosen is based on a cocktail I had at the Boilermaker House in Melbourne with my friend Joel. You can look around and find your own combinations of beer and whiskey. However, I would recommend some experimentation as getting the right combination can be difficult. You might want to check out the Boilermaker section of your local bar's menu for some ideas. In this case, I've used Jameson's Irish Whiskey Caskmates, which is a, an Irish whiskey aged in stout barrels. For the beer, I've used a Feral Brewery Sly Fox, which is a summer ale, but feel free to experiment on your own. In a shaker with ice, Combine 2 ounces of whiskey, 3 quarters of an ounce of fresh-squeezed lemon juice, 1 quarter ounce of simple syrup, 1 tablespoon of orange marmalade, 2 dashes of orange bitters, shake vigorously for 30 seconds, and strain into a large glass. Top up with 2 ounces of the beer of your choice. Share with a doppelganger, or a phantom that echoes the haunting quality of memory and nostalgia. Enjoy! Enjoy! Last week, I put out a challenge to our listeners to write a review for The Math of You on the iTunes website of the country of their choice. The first to do so was Shell underscore Soz, who gave us five stars and rated us perfect. Absolutely charming, great conversation, beautifully recorded. Thanks, Shell. Next was Abris Verlierer. That's future guest of the show, Megan Nielsen who titled the review, Dang, and gave us five stars. I'm a sucker for tell-all lunches or opinions dramatically revealed in the group chat. Tell me about the little things that make you tick. That formula applies beautifully in audio format, and I'm so in for this show. The guests are varied and interesting, all with their own unique charm. Not to mention the editing is crisp and the sound is good. P.S. Keep the cocktail recipes coming. Thanks, Megan. I look forward to your episode. And finally... The artist of our logo art, Telen Lee, wrote an interesting review, but I did say I would read them, so here goes. Ethnographic in a human way, five stars. The Math of You is a fascinating podcast about hearing not just about the nostalgic markers of the past, the branding and advertising we're told we're supposed to like, but the actual enthusiasm and love people have for the media of their actual experiences in their different contexts. It's easy to listen to, reasonably well-mixed, appends a a cocktail recipe, bracket, why, close bracket, and avoids... uh... flocking on nihilification. So, thank you, I guess? If you want your review read on the podcast, just hop on over to iTunes and leave us a nice review, or even a constructive review. I want criticism as well. Also nice things. But do so, and if you're in a different country than Australia or the U.S., let me know and I'll check out those places as well. The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are posted every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send an email to themathovyou at gmail.com and tell me what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at You. And you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokiified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokiified82 on Snapchat. You can also directly support the show by going to patreon.com slash and pledging as little as a dollar a month. We've got some great rewards, and I would really, really appreciate it. Next week, I'll be talking to writer and podcaster Catherine Van Arendonk co-host of Appointment Television, about serialized television, and how deprivation can lead to critical thought. We're also going to talk about Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Join me, won't you?
1: There... This is how my brain works. There's like weird... I don't know if your brain does this, but I have like... I guess it's the equivalent of a soapbox, but I have the weirdest things to have soapboxes about. So, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the film... Yes, you um, have my attention.
0: Yes, there secret is... Secret of the Ooze. Yes, secret,
1: Okay, the Ooze plays a pivotal role, right? Uh-huh. Now, uh, if you recall from the first film, Shredder is knocked off of a building mm-hmm. into a garbage compactor... Yep, and squished, and squished, and they're like, "Okay, great, Shredder's dead." Now Shredder comes back; he survived somehow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He becomes Super Shredder, which is really just the wrestler Kevin Nash I in a Shredder say, he costume. Turned, he turns
0: into Diesel.
1: <laughs> he he right. turns into Diesel, and uh, he is defeated by like a wooden boat dock that just falls on him, uh-huh. and he's actually dead. And there's for what I've always found that mm, unsatisfying (laughs) that normal shredder could be could survive a garbage truck Mm -hmm. and super shredder like some logs fell on him. And he's like, I'm done, guys. I'm out.
0: Is is this, in fact, some sort of magic dock?
1: Well, (laughs) I don't I don't know if the ooze touched the dock at all. If no, there's some, some sort of just like be
0: this weird woodman, I and mean, honestly, <laughs> with th- thinking of those like late stage Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures, <laughs> there probably was a woodman in there, along with you know that time Raphael played baseball, or the yeah. time Donatello was a cowboy. Oh man, I think I had a bunch of those. I had there was that was it
1: a a frogman or alligator man that wore like Hawaiian
0: clothes? There like Hawaiian were in fact, for frogmen oh! <laughs> and there was then Leatherneck who was a uh, crocodile man or okay. alligator man and okay. yeah all the frogs wore Hawaiian shirts and they That's were all right. being after dictators and so they had names like <laughs> Napoleon Bonafrog <laughs> <laughs> oh god I think we found our warm up point that doesn't make any <laughs> sense <laughs> Of course. No, there was Rasputin. Oh, I'm trying to think now. There was Genghis Frog. There was Rasputin Frog. There was Napoleon the Frog. And there was one. I can't remember. Are these the even puns? It's just. Oh, Attila of the Frog. Attila the Frog. That was the other one.
1: Rasputin <laughs> Frog. It's like it's oh, it's like the lazy version of like the Marilyn Manson band, where they just like just, <laughs> instead of actually like jamming together disparate names, they just tacked Frog at the end. <laughs> Like Kermit the Frog's cousins. Yes, he doesn't like to talk about them. He doesn't go to his family reunions anymore.
0: Nope. Although, speaking of wrestling and uh, anthropomorphic animals, mm. there was an episode of Raw where they had the Muppets take over for one of the uh, for one of the promos leading up to the first Muppets movie, and it was actually really funny. Like they had they had the Muppets interacting with the wrestlers who are equally as cartoony as the Muppets. Oh yeah. And um, at one point, Beaker is being menaced by a couple of bad guy wrestlers and is run off by Seamus, whose primary identifying characteristic is that he's extremely pale, extremely large, and has, like, a bright red beard and flat top. hmm And mm-hmm. so he comes over and he scares off the bad guys and turns in a menacing way to Beaker, who is cowering, and then basically, like, hugs him and says, Hey, man, how's it going? Uh, I'll see you at the family reunion, right? And I'm like, that, that's decent. That's, oh, come on. For, when, you're, when your level of, like, when your bar is that low for humor, it's like, you know what? That's actually well thought out. Someone looked at this real, actual person and went, you know what? You do look like someone cosplaying Beaker as, so like, you know, Tom of Finland Beaker. So. <laughs> like, they're, they're the
1: conversation between Vince McMahon and, like, the head of the Muppets. So make sure you bring the Beakman one. He looks like Seamus. <laughs> Don't forget, be sure to
0: imply ch- that Beaker's in fact an offshoot of an <laughs> Irish wrestling family.
1: Why did he? Why did Vince McMahon become who he is? Why did that happen?
0: Because if he didn't, it he would probably would have destroyed all life as we know it. Yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's an ambitious one. Yeah, that's
1: cheap. Well, he's already done that number a number of times. That. You know, he's he's past eighty now. That's dumb. That's really dumb. He should die in the ring. <laughs> oh, well, let's not joke about that.
0: Considering There was that, was that he, time he slid, he slid under the bottom rope and tore both of his quadricep muscles and then had what? to do the rest of the bit sitting on, like, on the floor of the ring while people no. talked at him. No. Because, hey, man, the show must go on. <laughs> the show must go on. Oh, my and, God. And on that note, Craig, for those people who may not know you, why don't you... <laughs> Give it one more, Craig. For people who may not know you, why don't you tell the world why you are? One more read. (laughs) It doesn't laughing too hard.